Dotnet Rocks, episode 1004, with guest Martin Yule. Recorded Friday, June 6th, 2014. Thanks very much. Welcome back to Dotnet Rocks. Carl and Richard in the, in the fishbowl at NDC, the Norwegian Developers Conference. We've been here for a whole month from your perspective. <laughs> yes. But only a few days yes. from ours. <laughs> we spanned the 1,000th episode at the NDC. How did we do that? So last night they had the NDC party. Oh, and, yeah. And uh, I just can't, I can't express enough how much this just feels like a rock show here, you know? They, yeah. They actually had a band on stage that was, you know, they reminded me of Mumford and Sons. Yeah, they got such good harmonies. Yeah, three-part harmony, uh, almost bluegrassy, but yeah. not not real hickey. No, nope, nice. not too hickey. And yeah. uh, my friend Carl Franklin played a nice set to warm everything up. It was great. Um, I did a uh, twenty minutes of you know Delta blues and singing and stuff, and then Scott Hanselman came on and did like this funniest bit I ever saw. Yeah. Uh, Who knew JavaScript sort of the, could be that funny? Yeah, it's sort of about the, the you know where we've been. It just puts the the future into perspective, right? Yeah. And, but as I'm going off the stage, he says, "How about that, Carl Franklin, a guy who plays six instruments and he knows VB, <laughs> <laughs> right? VB is awesome. Yep, it's kind of funny. Well, you do have VB on your license plate. I de- I used to. I oh, did you get that played up? Yeah, and uh-huh. it says C sharp now. Oh, does it really? <laughs> no, it does. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> would wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah, maybe one person in town would know what the heck that is. Well, that's all you want. That's why I like I like to live in a town where nobody knows what programming is all about. Absolutely, you can do the joke. Uh, there are only two ten kinds of people in the world: those who understand binary, and those who don't. And people look at me like the dog. And then you, you can know? walk away and feel yeah. perfectly fine. It's awesome. All right, let's roll the crazy music. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, I went back to the uh, Stack Overflow uh, thread, what is your best programmer joke, and I scrolled down almost to the bottom of the page. And this one was actually invented by one of the members, you know, Stack Overflow uh, contributors. Oh, yeah. Number 345. And I don't know what his real name is or her real name is, but uh, their alias is uh, Snigger Fartamungus. And you can take that, you know, it's one word and it's kind of nonsense. That name his mother gave him. I don't think so. I don't think so. But anyway, this cl- he claims it to be an original joke. It's pretty good. So here you go. I called the janitor the other day to see what he could do about my dingy linoleum floor. He said he'd be happy to loan me a polisher, but he didn't have the slightest idea what he'd done with it. I told him not to worry about it, that as a programmer, it wasn't the first time I'd experienced a buffer allocation failure due to a memory error. (laughs) That's awesome! That's a great joke! I can't remember where I put my buffer... I don't know where my floor polish is. That's a buffer allocation error right there. Brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, nobody in New London would know anything about nope. it. Yeah, it's great. Oh, that's such a good joke. So there you go. 
Who's talking to us, buddy? I grabbed a comment off of show 973, and that's the one we did a while ago with Neil Black, where we talked about building software for Smart Glass. Right. The extension to Xbox. That was a fun show. And uh, Guilherme Ferreira said, Hi, guys. Great show. This, quote, context screen is a great idea. I can see it applied in sports games with the stats of the game. For example, I would love to see it applied to FIFA from EA Sports and to be able to see any time that the game stats, players with yellow red cards, the tactics, etc. You know what's great about that? Hmm. You can take all that stuff off the screen yeah, and so just the watch can the just game. Look like a game, right? Yeah. And then, uh, what I find interesting is, is he's talking. He's not talking about real football slash soccer. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. talking about the video game version right. of it, right? Although I think it would work with real soccer as Absolutely. well. That's a constant struggle. There's so many players on the team. It's really challenging to figure out who's who. To, to actually have all the names and jerseys and stuff on that second screen would be great. And I also like the idea of just being able to turn layers on and off. Like, you know, you could have this sort of augmented reality hovering over them that you can, you know, if you want to look at individual stuff about a particular player. That's a different story, though. That's a cool idea, actually, that you would hold your phone up using the camera Great callback to our show yeah. coming up here and actually have it see the screen, know what channel you're on, and figure out the player you're looking at right now is so-and-so and give you a list of data. Yep. It's kind of like the, the, the thing that uh, Luke Skywalker was looking through, uh, you know. Right. His, his binoculars. His binoculars. Guilherme goes on to say, I think this is also a great concept for TV channels. For example, I could see it applied to cooking shows. Neat. So that you could actually get the recipes right then and there while you're seeing it being made. Sure. Much brilliant idea. Or a music contest like the X Factor so that you can actually get voting numbers, options to do voting, and so forth. Like all that sort of reality stuff where you want to interact with the audience would be better done on a second screen. And you know, who says you have to hold the second screen in your lap? It yeah. could just be next to the TV. Yeah. And just for data. Yeah. And you get it all off the, the main screen. If you don't care about the data, don't watch it. Yeah. I love it. It's lots of possibilities here. I think we've barely scratched the surface yeah. of doing second screen well. And it's, you know, it's, it makes me want to study smart glass closer because there's mm. all kinds of tooling there to make it better. Yeah. Uh, so, Guillermo, thanks you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Windows Phone 7 and 8, iOS, Android, and Windows 8. And those apps are built by Diatom Enterprises. Who'd love to build you an app? Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. And before we go any further, let me tell you that Pluralsight is home to the largest technology and creative training library on the planet. They have thousands of developer, IT, and creative courses offered by MVPs and industry experts. They release dozens of new courses every month and still offer a 10-day trial for free, giving you 200 minutes of access. Pluralsight offers a wide range of topics, including iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much everything and anything Microsoft. So try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And that brings us to our esteemed guest, Martin Ewell. Martin is a software craftsman working in startup stealth mode in the field of computer vision and machine learning. He has spent his career building applications for web, mobile, and data centers in fields as diverse as dating, defense, finance, and telecom. You should figure out how to put all those together in one app. <laughs> <laughs> I call you for a date and you explode. <laughs> <laughs> before before the arrival of the internet age, he studied mathematics and computer science in Copenhagen and is very happy that libraries and powerful processors are finally making the hitherto exotic academic disciplines for computing with images accessible to everyone. He lives in Copenhagen, Denmark. Welcome, Martin. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, glad to have you here. And of course, you didn't have to travel all that far to get here either. Yeah. We're, we're in Oslo. 
Yeah, it's easy for me. Yeah, yeah. you got it. Got it going well. Computer vision. Yeah, because we've all got cameras, but I don't think we really program against them. You've done a little with the Connect, right? I have, but you know, we were ta- Martin was talking. He, st- he stopped by earlier, and we just had this short five minute conversation. And you said that uh, you were just interested in seeing what the current state of the art was, and you thought it was far down the road, you know, far in the future that you could even do recognize shapes and things with computers and you found out that no no there's a lot of stuff right now that's available yeah and that was really a big eye-opener for me because i've looked at at computer vision in the 90s and back then you could pretty much if you wanted to not wanted to wait for the computer to actually process your images you could do simple stuff like find the green apple in the image or something like this oh yeah so it was quite boring and uh, then later I realized that I started noticing people in the street counting pedestrians, counting bicycles and, and cars. And I thought, wow, maybe a computer could do that. And and maybe 10 years ago it would be possible, but you'd still need quite a lot of specialists. To mm-hmm. Expensive toys. Expensive toys, yeah. So still back then it was cheaper to just use uh, people. And uh, then recently I, I, have, I noticed that there was this application for my iPhone that you showed a bottle of wine. And it will tell you what wine it is, what grapes, what vintage, everything else. So not just taking a picture of the bottle, so for you to remember, but actually reading the text on the bottle and then checking that against the database. It recognizes the wine, and if it knows it, it will tell you, ah, it's this one. So it's not just optical character recognition. It's doing matching against the label. Excellent. And that's that's what uh, I thought, okay, that's now that we're at the point of magic in your pocket with, with an app like that. Oh, and yeah. I thought, okay, it's probably still very difficult. Because hitherto, if you look back, computer vision has been something for national defense size budgets, and then maybe it moved to industry, and you could use it for sorting mail, but you still need this big check project. Right. And now the, the Vivino wine, wine scanner, I think they use it to solve the simple problem of people not having to type uh, the name of a French wine into their smartphone. Right. So it seems like yeah. the price point has come down dramatically. Sure. Well, yeah, do. it's hard to argue with 99 cents, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was blown away when I looked at the Microsoft Research Face SDK. Have you seen this? This is the, if you just look at, you know, search for Microsoft Research Face SDK, uh, these are uh, some, I think these are some Chinese students that did this at Microsoft. You can basically th- uh, throw a picture up through this, run a picture through this SDK, and it will sh- bring you the rectangles where the faces are, and then those faces become uh things that that you can um program against yeah and so you can it'll track them as if they're you know if you're looking at uh these images say that they're frames of a video it'll track them around and the connect of course does some face tracking and wow it does some real crazy face tracking like you know there's something like almost 100 points in the face that it can look at and see how it changes, and I haven't seen any um, uh, face recognition software with the Connect yet. But I imagine it'd be a lot easier to do with the Connect than it would be just regular camera because you have all those data points. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, f- I'm not so familiar with the hardware, but I guess it, it's uh, something that's now a couple of articles came out this year. You see that you have face recognition that's at the level of uh, the accuracy of humans. Yeah. Yeah. The Connect for Windows, by the way, 199 bucks. Hard to argue with Version that. Version 2. Didn't yeah. Facebook start doing face recognition briefly? It was a number of years ago. 
And so that you I know, think they were you, going to. You know, you had to tag. You know, in Facebook, you tag a picture, say that's so and so. And I thought they actually briefly deployed software to do it automatically, and but then it, they rescinded. It dropped into it creepiness right creepy. away. Right. Creepy, yeah. I think there's an interesting balance. There's something about image that image technology was like. I know who that is. Having a computer do that that just makes people uncomfortable. Definitely. When yeah. I look at this, I, it's easy to get this uh, this this perspective that you can do all these things, things, and then in the end you think, but that's so creepy. Yeah. It's for 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 military intelligence. You can see that it's being put to that kind of use, and and what interests me is more to see how can we use it in our daily daily life to see the applications that we use every day. I hate typing on a smartphone. Yeah. Right. It just doesn't work for me. I, I like a keyboard. It's quite fast, but the other thing. It kills me. Yeah, so let's go beyond face recognition and talk about some of the other things that you... Yeah. So, so for me, I think that what, what makes computer vision interesting now is that you don't really have to be an expert. You can go off, you can get the libraries, they're free, they're open source, and run on pretty much every platform. You can, for example, for my talk here, I used a library called OpenCV. OpenCV? Oh, yeah. Uh, open computer, computer vision. vision, yes. It's at okay. opencv.org. Yes, it's free, and it's one of these libraries that Intel developed about 15 years ago in order to uh, make people crave bigger CPUs. And it's got some video stuff into it. It in has it as video, well. it has that's, image processing, it. it has uh, object recognition like face recognition that you can train it. It has uh, object detection, so you can do a lot of really cool stuff. And all these PhDs have just been hard at work building it, and you can use it for free. So you just need to learn an API. You don't need to learn all this heavy math and right. that, that was the domain of the computer vision specialist uh, before now. Wow. C++, C, Python, Java, support Windows, Linux, mm. Mac OS, iOS, Android. Mm -hmm. And there's a .NET adapter for it as well. So oh, yeah. Awesome. That's called MGUCV. Does it require Java? No. no. It's a C++ library. So you oh, great. pretty much you just have adapters from the other languages. And there's Android as well. You s I saw that. Interesting. Yeah, there it is on NuGet. Yeah. OpenCV.NET 3.22 is on NuGet. It's absolutely current. So this is not even, this is, I don't have to, to do anything fancy as far as this library is concerned. It's, it's just going to come straight into .NET and play with me. You drop it into your project and there you go. And okay. it has multi-core support. It runs on your GPU. If, uh, if you have a good uh, GPU, it's accelerated for that. You don't have to worry. So uh, and is object detection the thing that you work with? So how, do, how does that work? Do you have to program it with images of things that it can recognize later? Yeah, so generally you would have two kinds of, of object detection. One is detecting known objects, and the other one, which is more difficult, is detecting a class of objects. Say, mm. if you want to uh, uh, identify if... As, as, um, now, for my talk, I used the example that I wanted to have this pizza alarm. So I wanted to put a camera on a Raspberry Pi in my, uh, outside my apartment, and right. then I wanted to play some music when the pizza delivery arrived. Mm. Neat. And not just when anybody arrives, when the pizza delivery guy arrives. Exactly. Yeah. So you're planning on doing image recognition of a pizza delivery guy. And yes. It could be from any pizza delivery company. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But uh, just for my talk, I used just one uh, company so I know what their box looks like. Ah, uh, okay. gotcha. Uh, of course, I could do it with more boxes. But yeah. that's not, you only have so many uh, pizza companies in your local area. Yeah, it's kind of feasible. Just order one from each, make a picture of the box. So... Talk and about the, how you did this. And this, this is going to blow your mind because okay. I, uh, I looked at the libraries. I found the, I 
had an excuse to go get myself a pizza. <laughs> I took a photograph of the box. It's for research, dear. We need a pizza. <laughs> yep. <laughs> exactly. And actually, the first time I bought a pizza, they had put some advertising on the box, uh, and it didn't really look good for my uh, for my presentation. So, by the way, uh, does Danish pizza have cream cheese and apricot jam on it too, or is that uh, no, no? It's not no. that weird. Okay. No. Okay. I don't know. This was old, old school pepperoni pizza. All right. Real pizza. But the first yeah. box had extra advertising on it, so you had to go back and get another one? I had to go back the next day and get a, another Things pizza Things we do for research. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's hard being a developer these days. All but, right. Uh, so anyway, we've derailed you enough. So I take a, I take a photo of this, uh, this box, and I just... Um, and then basically computer vision works by a principle called that it will detect certain key points on... On the image, and these will be characteristic points like corners, special geometries. Okay. Uh, so, depending a little bit on what kind of detector you use, it can be, but let's just say corners where you have high contrast in the image. So, if there's a nice logo or you have the corners of the box, it will detect those and then it puts those into a very compact data structure. That means you reduce the image to from maybe eight megapixel image in, in that's a, a big file mm-hmm. into a, a a few hundred key points. Right. And those you can store in a database. Now, the next thing is you just observe from your camera in the corridor. You run the same kind of key point detection algorithm. And not, then you do, you do a matching. So that's now you're into just uh, machine learning. You find the nearest neighbors for key points that look the same in the same images. And then it will also check that if, the, if there's a corner in one, one image, uh, let's say on the pizza box that you want to recognize, and it finds a similar looking corner in the image from from outside your house then we will try with uh, different pairs of of key points and check that geometry so that it's it's the same because you could have more than one corner in the image sure but uh, and that's uh, that's all it does and uh, if it matches enough key points between the two images and it see they have a similar geometry to them then it will say okay now i found these points and they connect like this and uh, the transformation the rotation and the scaling and the position in in your wild image in relation to to your known image is this and 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 there you go you so basically you reduced it to a one one page of code wow with so library calls yeah, and then all you need to do is just uh, yeah highlight the box in the image and and play the music and the delivery guy will what be what song does it play Actually, I I, uh, I didn't uh, add the music part yet. But oh, okay, but doesn't now, matter. It just says pizza time. It's but how signal. do you compensate for the geometry changes? Like, does the does part of the point collection know this is the plane that these points are on, so they can change an angle that way? So what you're talking about, I think, is a concept of well, one of one of it's related to what. Uh, is rotational invariance that right. could, uh, and of course uh, the rotation could be in the plane it could also be that you have uh, an upright pizza box and then uh, you have it at an angle right I mean I've got to think when you took a picture of that pizza box you got right over it and mm-hmm. got a nice squared image exactly. directly over the logo you know you got the ideal image mm-hmm. and you're never going to get that from the video camera the pizza's always going to be at an angle it's going to be partially obscured by the guy holding it like there's a lot of subtlety there and i, I presume the library absorbs a lot of this to be able to exactly. deal with exactly that's what changes. makes it so great because right. you don't need to be a phd to do it anymore right the library has all this insight and what it does actually it's a it's a very clever trick that they use to describe the the key points uh that uh, one technique is that you make a histogram of the gradient. So the gradients are the, how fast is the color changing in a given point in, if you go in different directions. So if you're, uh, 
let's say you have a an, an edge that's white on one side and black on the other side, then you would see there's a there's a strong change from white to black. Right. Right. So you would plot a histogram of the different orientations of the gradients in that part of the image that you're looking at. Sure. So you will see, for example, if you have a, an upper left corner, you will have a lot of gradient uh, uh, representing a left edge and a top edge. But you wouldn't see gradients representing shifting from, from, uh, Got it. from a down edge, for example. So you get a signature so by looking at the histogram. Compensating for all of those things. Yeah, and, but... Uh, it's probably easier to to see than to hear on, a, sure. on the show, but yeah. let, let me just say that they had this really neat trick. So they can they can uh, describe geometric features like corners in terms of a histogram. That's uh, scale invariant. Uh, they can do make it scale invariant, and the way they make it rotation invariant is that they just define that we always represent the up direction as the strongest gradient that we see at that point. Oh, neat! So they essentially. Um, then even if it's rotated and they compare, then they will have the same histograms in two two images. Sure. Because the, the relative directions would still be the same and they just define that the strongest one is, is in the first column. Whatever, and the highest contrast becomes the strongest one. So that's top. Yep. And then you just rotate to match the history. You'd always be able to figure that no, out. No, you don't need to rotate it because you define that the, the, the strongest one is always first. So you just all, you okay. use the histogram. And that makes searching faster. Use the yeah, histogram instead of the 3D model. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's it. really clever. It's really uh, difficult to talk about. This is much easier when you see it, and that's, yeah. I think it's uh, one of the great things about computer vision is you get instant visual feedback. And you, yeah, yeah, you know right away that it's recognized it, yeah. seen it that that way around. Of uh, course, if if you look at, at a problem like this, and you'll also notice that in a, in a uh, big image, you will have lots of corners that may uh, they're similar to what's on the pizza box. Yeah. So you need to also, but the good thing is you have so many key points that when you start matching them all and checking that they have the same kind of geometry to them that uh, represented on the known box and in your camera image, then in the end you can filter down and say, okay, these are the relevant ones. And, right. uh, and if you have match enough, then between the two images, you say we have a good enough match. So, and the, so that basically means that you're never sure. Yeah, so it's, you are in the machine it, learning. Do you domain. actually go to probability? Like we think there's a 90% match or an 80% match and you set a threshold around that? There are various ways to address that, but generally what it's, it's using is a, it's a, a nearest neighbor algorithm that okay. will be common to people doing uh, machine learning. And yeah. It will plot the points, and you can set uh, what kind of error you want. Okay. Now, maybe I'm thinking about this wrong, but I think of video as many still images. Is the algorithm being applied image by image? And, and you know, how does it not just get behind? If you're producing effectively 60 images a second... You know, in, in a, a real-time video image, do you have to process each one of those, or is there some kind of composite going on? The best is uh, to simply just grab a frame, process it, and then when you're ready, you grab the next. Grab frame. the next frame. So you're just skipping frames in between. You don't yeah. try and grab. But them it's all. quite fast. We are talking about um, sub-second uh, latency for right. this kind of uh, so you, detection. You're not getting every frame, but you're probably getting several frames a second. Yeah, and it could be more. Depends on how many key points you have. The, right. the, 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 this kind of matching uh, algorisms, they are the order of n to the third, I believe, in the worst case. Okay. Uh, so they're in very the light. Of key points. Yeah. Well, n to the third, if you have a big n, then it could be a lot of calculation. Yeah. If you, so the number of key points is always an issue. Like, I was thinking about your initial image. Like, do you, is it figuring out the key points itself? Like, would you, or you would be defining those as, I care about the edges of the box, and I also care about some points on the logo, I, I think we'd overdo it. I mean, all you really need to do is recognize, is this the pizza box? And so for that, you just need to find those 
those key points and how how many is enough before you can discern it from from something else you probably have on the scale of a few hundred but yeah. it depends you tell you that you have different key point detection algorithms some will be more concerned with uh, with the high contrast areas like edges of things and right and others they will uh, look at certain uh, geometries so it's, it's the 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 key point detector plays a role, but generally you just tell it, I want this many key points out. And then it will take, because it, it there will be a lot of, of irrelevant detail in the image. Sure. So you don't want to have any possible key point and try to match that. Also, yeah. it will not be accurate because you will also be trying to match some of the noise in the image. Well, and, and end of the third means more points of yeah, substantially jumps the cost. So it's worth trying to pare these points down as much as possible. I mean, I sort of see with a pizza box, there's two sets of points you care about. That it's a box, so you care about the edges, and that it's that pizza company, so, so you the, look logo. At the logo. Right. Yes. But, if you, but if you do just the logo, then it might be the guy's jacket that you're going to mm. pick up. And if you do just a box, it could be any box. So basically what you do, you don't really have to tell it that I'm interested in the edges and the logo. What you do is you show it the image, and then you decide on the algorithm, and it will figure out what are the relevant key points according to that key point. So you're algorithm. just switching between algorithms? Yeah, I just picked one that right. uh, was uh, uh, good and uh, for for you this kind of job. Tested it, but you have a you have a number of of those in in this vision library. Okay, so. that's cool. So if you have one that doesn't really work for your domain, you, you just try, try one a bunch the of them, right? Yeah. You mentioned the Raspberry Pi driving the camera. I presume the Raspberry Pi isn't doing the image matching; it's just passing the video stream back to something with a bit more horsepower. No, you could run it on a Pi. Really? really? That's cool. That's amazing. It's a it's a Linux box. It's a. Yeah, it's yeah. a so it's a nice CPU. So, and you're a .NET developer. Yeah, but uh, so I, I actually did this in Python in order to put it on a, on a Raspberry, nice. on a Raspberry yes. Pi. But it's a, just a Python API sitting on top of this uh, C++ library. It seems to me you can, this would be a great way to, to get kids into the relevance of math. Because this is the thing that you hear from kids in math a lot of times. They don't want to study it because there's no practical application. Like, when am I ever going to need this, right? But in all this technology stuff, especially with computer vision, you know, you're going to need geometry. You, you, under, you have to understand this stuff. So giving a, giving a kid like a, a program like this and explaining how, how it works and how, how you can program it, you're going you're gonna to have to need some math. Definitely. And yeah. I think it, it's very inspiring to look at where we could use it at, let's say, the, the low end of the scale. Because, sure, we'll have Apple doing self-driving cars and all right. the kinds of exotic stuff. But... I just uh, yesterday talked to someone that said that he always wanted, but he didn't know how to to uh, to recognize the cars as he was going to work to see mm. if uh, he w- it was the same commuters that he was meeting every day or was someone new. Oh, really? Very cool. And I thought, I would never have thought of that application. Yeah. Right. But now it turns out that we're so powerful in terms of what kinds of uh, computing power we have in our pocket and, and in terms of the libraries available to us that yeah. he can actually go home, he can build that kind of application. He can solve a problem that was, until now, it was you wouldn't even imagine that you would attempt to solve that problem. So he could put that on his dashboard or whatever yeah. and he could just watch the cars driving by and say, oh, that's Bob or that's Jane or uh-huh. it's Bill or... Well, and, yeah, whatever. even if you don't necessarily know who it is, it's just the right. idea that that's the same person, you see them every day. Right. Yeah. So it's this uh, person passes you in the left hand lane at eight fifty nine every morning. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's somewhere between a lot of fun and very creepy. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimate stalker tools. But uh, just to give you an example of this, I think probably all computer science students now, if they they learn computer vision, they probably do a number plate detection on cars. Yeah, immediately. Uh, 
And I used that as an example in the, in the talk, and that's what probably what inspired him, because I saw the Danish police, they wanted to build a system for that. Because there's a certain number of plates that you want to talk to the owner, maybe he didn't pay his tax, maybe he didn't go for inspection in right. time, and maybe the plates are stolen and things. But it's not really feasible to go out and check everything. You can't, yeah. even if you put a policeman on the corner, he can't really look up every plate and the car's gone before he can yeah. stop it. And then they thought, okay, let's just put some cameras in our police cars. And they, they started to, uh, to play with this and they allocated a, a budget of around a little over three million US dollars to do a pilot. And, uh, and computer science students, they probably do this in a semester project. And, sure. And I used uh, it as an example in the talk and it's, uh, I think it's around 300 lines of code to do the kind of the, the uh, a simple license plate detection and optical character recognition of the plates. Mm. So imagine you have this uh, over three million US dollars budget, and 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 you have three hundred lines of code, and the the change you can use for buying cameras and taking on a very nice vacation. <laughs> That's crazy. Ten thousand dollars a line. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is now? It must be that happy time again. Yep. Time to stop working for a bit and order a Danish pizza with gradients, angles, and plotted points, and a picture of histogram on the side. <laughs> okay. I was kind of happy with the whole Python pizza thing, but we'll go along with that. Actually, it's time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who won today, let's talk about Developer Express Universal. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. Awesome. So who's our winner, Bob? Today's winner is Matthew O'Rourke. Congratulations, Matthew. Congrats, Matthew. I love giving stuff away. <laughs> it's yeah. my favorite part of the it's show. It's a fun part of the show, for sure. Yeah, so Matthew just won the D-Experience subscription from Developer Express. This is a, a lot of what they do in a big box from them. It's $2,000 value. And uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. And every show, we give away sponsor goods like the D-Experience subscription. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club picked at random. Mm-hmm. Done We've it twice. Done it twice Rob already. And, and uh, we're going to do it again this year. Yeah, I think so. We'd like to ask our guests, Martin, if you had $5,000 to spend right now on technology, what would you buy? Well, I think we've been talking about the Raspberry Pis. I think they're a lot of fun. And Twenty-five bucks a crack—that's a lot of Raspberry. That's pie. a lot of Pis. <laughs> but uh, and somebody yesterday told me that they actually use them also for mining bitcoins. They use a, a little Pi, they uh, put up a data center, and then they connect an FPGA that does actual number crunching. Right. To control that, so you think you could build all kinds of data centers with Pi? That's just mind blowing. Little itty bitty ones, nice and compact. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to argue with Raspberry Pis. They're amazing with it. For what they, such a small machine, such low cost. Like, why isn't every appliance got something like that? And you know, if you like C sharp, you can run Mono on them. Yeah, right. So, well, then there's the Arduinos. Like, there's a lot of choice now for for really small computers. That's it. Just Pis, many many Pis. Well, you can give away some for your friends. You yeah, can put sure. cameras in them and give them your pizza delivery detector to everybody you know or something like this. Well, and, and I think 
the camera discussion has got to be a big piece of this in terms of actually building computing vision solutions because the kind of cameras got to matter, doesn't it? But generally, you have such great cameras even right. in your mobile phone that it doesn't really matter much. You know, I can imagine a, what a Raspberry Pi data center would look like. <laughs> just imagine a room, you know, with just Raspberry Pis all over the wall, you know, just like mounted to the wall and lots and lots of USB cables. Yes. Yeah, hanging in racks. Hanging just in racks. With a half inch between them so you can get some air flowing by because yeah. you get yeah. that many Pis in a room, it's going to get warm. A little warm. Yeah. Yeah. But they're really low power. You can Very run them off power. of a USB. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Right. You do a lot with them, and you know, connect those things up and have fun. This Raspberry Pi solution you built for the pizza. What kind of camera? Because it wasn't a phone camera. I mean, I, I agree, phone cameras are amazing. Phone cameras, I think, relatively speaking, are expensive. But the Raspberry Pi with the with the camera, the the one version, I think, in the U.S. dollars, is still less than a hundred dollars. Right. So I'm looking at the U.K. site for Raspberry Pi sales and a Raspberry Pi camera module. So the Pi itself is 20 pounds and the camera module is like 15 pounds. You know, maybe there's some kits to put them together. The camera itself is uh, 30 frames per second on a 5 megapixel sensor. That's a pretty great camera. It's excellent. Yeah, it's an HD image you can pull out of that. And... Uh, the dirty little secret of computer vision is most of the time you scale down your image anyway right. to, to a much lower resolution to speed up things. Yeah. Sure. And then you also get rid of all kinds of details that you're not interested in. Right. So it's like actually being low, grainier is eliminating noise, not eliminating content. Yeah. That often the first pre-processing step is you blur the image and you scale it down to a <laughs> SVGA uh, or a VGA that. resolution. Really? Sure, because, because you want major shapes. You don't want details. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. So high-res cameras don't matter. This is not the issue. Yeah, so you can do it on, on cheap hardware like this, and I think we can put it to amazing use because we just need to tell people that it's here, it's, it's real, and it's something for everyone. It's not just for these armies of PhDs anymore. Mm. Right. Yeah, and, and realistically, if the, reg if the regular population of developers is doing stuff with it, we'll get away from this sort of creepy Big Brother is watching you model if everybody's got image processing available to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just give you an example. When I uh, I buy uh, bus tickets in uh, in Denmark, you can do it from your mobile phone, but you still have to key in your uh, your credit card number if you right. want to uh, add more credit to your account. Yeah. But there's no reason that they wouldn't just uh, let you show it, uh, show the camera, the your credit card, and right. it could read off the number and your name. Yeah. Why would And you it? could do it. Why Why do you have to uh, to to type that? Yeah, I've seen yeah you, right. you're just trying to get away from typing on your phone, which yeah. you know, that's a I lot hate of work. Typing on no, phone. Yeah, it's does. terrible. Who likes it, really? Yeah, yeah it's it's and awful. I think if, if we if we just look at these kinds of use cases, there are so many possibilities that we we're just just not considering because we're so used to strings and and integers that we forget that images are also formed data. Absolutely. So you mentioned that there's two types of image wrecking uh, object detection. One is you know, you take a picture of the pizza box and you can recognize the pizza box. But the other one is to recognize a class of objects, which is a, a little bit more difficult. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about that a little bit? The, the good thing about it is that you can, you can still use the libraries without knowing too much of what's going on inside. Right. Okay. But you, in any case, you still need a lot of training data. Mm -hmm. Let's say you want to, um, to recognize uh, just any kind of pizza box, including pizza boxes you've never heard of. Right. Sure. So I, I wanted to see what the pizza boxes look like. So I went to Alibaba, this uh, website where you can buy it from Chinese manufacturers. Sure, yeah, yeah. And they have literally thousands of different designs. And they are not all uh, all uh, 
the same geometry even. You have some that are round, you have some that are octagons and all kinds of pizza boxes. And of course, in order for to have a robust system, you need to train it. So then you get into it. It's really a machine learning problem that you need to feed it enough data. And generally, as a rule of thumb, you need to feed it about uh, uh, 1,000 positive images of, of known pizza boxes right. and about 2,000 uh, negative images of, okay. of other stuff. Other boxes that are close, yeah. maybe? So you can, you can get the, the, the libraries. Uh, they, they will do all this for you, but you cannot, they do not give you the data. So you really need to, um, to, to acquire all this imagery. Mm. And then you need to process it, and it takes a long time. Mm-hmm. So, so for the, the training part, it might run for, for days or even a week before you have a good classifier. But after that, it's, it's uh, very fast to just uh, to run it on an image and, and ask it, do you see a pizza box? But, but, but if, what if you're trying to look at something like a coffee, coffee cup? I mean, those coffee cups come in every kind of shape and size, but isn't there any way to just sort of, I, I don't know, define, you know, it, it looks sort of like this and it has a handle and, you know, isn't there any way to be a little bit more uh, generic or, or the thing explicit with about the shape without just giving it a lot of images? You could probably do a kind of a hybrid approach where you are doing a little bit of pre-processing, maybe based on 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 your own knowledge and implementing some of it. But generally, yeah. what they do is uh, they will use these uh, these uh, modern neural networks to uh, to learn. Oh, so it is neural network. Yeah. Oh. I mean, every, pretty much every learning system is some kind of neural network these days, isn't it? It's definitely coming back, but uh, for a long time, if you you looked at it, people used more like. Uh, yeah, randomized forest and, and other things right. where it's easier to understand what's going on. Whereas with the deep belief networks, you get a result, but you can't really necessarily tell what's happening. Right. You don't know why it hit a, it got it right. Yeah. And so the same token, you don't know when it gets it wrong, why it's getting it wrong. I mean, that's is- always the frustration when I've worked with neural networks is usually we ended up with training bias. Sooner or later, right. as you kept retraining and retraining and retraining, trying to get the perfect match, it's like, it worked great on the sample data, right. but in the real data, you know, then you introduce new boxes and it misses them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's always a problem. But it has really made a, a big comeback the last 10 years because people found out to had, uh, how to train the, the layered networks in, in a much more efficient way than, okay. than previously. Mm. So you take 1,000 right. positives, 2,000 distinct negatives, yes. and you run it through... Yeah, that's a rule of thumb, and then you'll mm. probably have something that's good enough that you would you would have your your any kind of pizza company delivery detection. Right. And when you said you just went to Alibaba and just pull a bunch of images down, is that a, a pretty good approach, or like go to Bing or Google and grab? I images, just wanted to see the images? diversity. I, I right, didn't actually yeah. train the generalized classifier. Oh, okay. I just wanted to see if it. Uh, and yeah. then in the end, I, I said, but actually, I don't have so many pizza shops in my right. area. But it's not a bad idea going just grabbing random images off of Google and Bing, like a, like coffee mugs. You know, I could uh-huh. just say coffee mug, right? And yeah. there's a bunch of probably a go to Flickr, yeah, Flickr or Instagram. Bunch there's of this really cool computer vision startup called Jetpack. They actually do city guides based on computer vision. So they they pull down all the Instagram uh, pictures and then they see if what is a bar in this city with the most happy people or huh. the, the most hipsters with beards and, and things. <laughs> and then they can generate automatic computer uh, or city guides for tourists just based on, on, on analyzing Instagram photos. Wow. And that's, that's, uh, that's now you're a little bit in the PhD territory, but it's still within reach. Yeah, well, it's just, that, and again, it's like you just haven't thought about, we already have this incredible library of photos sitting up on the internet, generally exposed to everybody. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, 
and we're not really doing anything with it. It's just sort of sitting there. The idea that we do this analysis, the, the associated metadata around the photo, where it was taken and so forth, makes it a way more interesting when you start doing analysis. Yes. So, interesting possibilities. Interesting indeed. Yeah. yeah I think it's mind-blowing. We're really going to see a big change when people start to, uh, to realize that, that everybody can do this. We'll have a big democratization of this whole space. Absolutely. Well, I, just, I keep getting hung up on just the phone. Like, all the things I want to do, images with phone. Well, Carl just spat one out out of the blue when we were talking about smart glass at the beginning of the show, where you hold your phone up to the TV screen, and it recognizes that player for you that's playing soccer and then gives you all the stats. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's just fascinating to me, that the, the idea that we use screens that way. It always seems to be augmented reality in one form or another. I just want more data about what I'm seeing. Yes. And that's sort of on the real-time side of stuff. But I think that generally the, the one computer vision type uh, application that most people know and use is actually optical character recognition. It's very low-fi. Right. Yeah. And what about OCR? Because we, we really haven't talked about that so far. That, that wine classifier is clearly using OCR to some degree to identify a wine. That's what I thought. Oh, really? And, uh, and then I, I remember reading an interview with the guys from that company saying, no, they found that OCR is actually not uh, very good. And then I started to really notice the bottles of, on wines. Right. And you'll notice, particularly the French wines, they are very elaborate and artistic. Right. And so the fonts are unreadable. Mm. Yeah, they pretty much look like a capture. They have all kinds of nice little patterns through the letters. Right, yeah. It's not about reading the text. No. So in the end, I think what, what they did with the, with the wine scanner was that they simply did this, uh, this uh, known object uh, detection. Right. So in some ways, object Com- detection is a better exercise for a lot of things than it is. For- I'm, I'm speculating because I don't know how they implement it. My guess is that they will do some kind of staged approach where they, they look at some, uh, some, easy to compute global features first, like what are the dominant colors of the label? And then they can then can narrow down the scope sure. of, of possible labels. And then they just match against known known wines. And I think in, in their database they have over a million wines. So wow. they, they pretty much know everything. Um, the the computer vision app that I've been using the past couple of weeks a lot is the Bing Translator app. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but uh, was traveling in Germany, and my German's just not that good. In fact, it's horrifying. But the Bing Translator app, I could literally use the camera, hold it over the menu, and it would change the words. That's brilliant. It was unbelievable. And mm-hmm. it's totally that augmented reality look of, I'm like, and every time the server would come by, see what I'm doing, that I'm holding the phone like it's a magnifying glass <laughs> over the menu and seeing the words. And they're like, is that, is it really? And it's real time, right? And as I'm moving it, the words are changing. But it totally depended on the font, the lighting in the room, the contrast. Like there was, in, you know, you go to a, the, the menus you couldn't read, fancy restaurants because mm-hmm. they got fancy fonts. Mm. So as soon as you, and, and low lighting, as soon as you went in there, it's like, I can't read this menu. Right? <laughs> you go to a cheap place with simple printed menus and bright lights, no problem at all. So that, that to me, you know, again, you get back to, is OCR worthwhile? Absolutely, and it's again, it's uh, it's uh, been open sourced. You have some very good libraries. Uh, Hewlett Packard, they they wanted to commercialize OCR, and they made this Scanjet uh, desktop scanner in right. the in the eighties. I think it was eighty seven, and they, in order to do that, they made a research project. So they built actually an OCR library called Tesseract, and then they didn't use it in the product. And at one point, they just open sourced it. Wow! And when I think when Google wanted to scan all the books and put them on the internet, they just took over the maintenance of that library 
and it's it's right, open it's on it's on Google Code. Yeah. Yeah. And you uh, you pull it down and you show it an image and it will do all the, this uh, difficult stuff like layout analysis to separate for example if you're scanning a book it will notice oh maybe you have a book title and a page number that's not relevant to scanning the the main text etc so just and actually it, focusing in on what's important which i think is the hardest part yeah so all this is is it has a lot of uh, of it removes a lot of difficulty and when you're down to just essentially making you're instantiating the library you're telling it which language it should uh, use in order to help improve the the, the accuracy and then you uh, just send it an image and you get a utf-8 text back Wow. Wow, indeed. So is that running on Google services? You're basically just picking the image and shipping it to them? No, it's a, it's a library. You just, uh, just add it to locally. your application. Yeah, and then they, they, they ship it with the training data. So it's already trained for a whole lot of fonts. So wow. it's, it's very accurate. That's amazing. So again, if you can think of any kind of problem where you have information, say, on, on paper that you want to have bring into your application, mm -hmm. instead of forcing your users to type it, they don't like it, even on a good, good keyboard. Then just uh, maybe consider putting a small app on the on their camera, allowing them to send a, a photograph they take with their camera, send it to your app, and then you do the processing. And if you do get it, let's say just eighty percent right, then they will be happy to do the last twenty percent. Sure, saves them work. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I think we really have to think about these kind of low end scenarios because that's where there's going to be so much potential. Yeah, it's just, it's, it, it, you're shooting fish in a barrel. It's, it's these little things here that are easy to grab onto yeah. and and make stuff better. Stop typing on your keyboard. Essentially, yeah. <laughs> and to take the shortcut. There's, there's absolutely no longer any point in having this. Uh, I mean, previously when, when computers were very expensive and hard to program and didn't have much power, then the humans were very flexible and, and right. we were relatively cheap. But especially with the touch uh, screen keyboards, we are, we are slow. Yeah. And uh, the computing power has become so inexpensive now that there's a shortcut saying that we can go directly from unstructured data source in the form of images to structured data right. via computer vision rather than going through the eyes of a human being and out through his fingers and through the keyboard. Yeah, using our computer vision processing mechanisms mm -hmm. or human vision processing mechanisms that are built in. Yeah. What are some of the other cool examples you've seen using uh, computer vision that we can uh, inspire people with? Yeah, definitely. Personally, the 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 wine thing was uh, was mind blowing, and then this uh, this kind of city guides because they, the the fact that you just pull off the Instagram feed and you look for all kinds of features, which place in the planet has the most blue sky, and that's just yeah. it's from a computer vision point of view, it's it's not the it's easier than it looks, but the result is amazing. That, com that so composite that data. Instagram is a great source of data for yeah. computer vision, isn't it? And that's a kind of an interesting tangent to, to, to working with the images is that you will think that whoever has a data center that holds Instagram photos or any other kind of big data sets, people who want to process that information, they want to be in the same data center. Right. Mm. So if you're a cloud provider and you see that all the big data sets are already living there, you should put your bet on that all the applications will eventually move there. Sure. Mm. Because we want, don't want to ship it around. Yeah, less yeah, distance yeah. is better. Hmm. Any other libraries? I mean, Tesseract's amazing. OpenCV, clearly a winner. Are there other libraries you count on? There's so many. So I, uh, <laughs> and I, d I don't even follow up. There's some, uh, you, you can spend a whole career doing this. I mm. Right. I just picked two that, uh, that seem to, to do what I wanted to do and that are, they're free, they're easily accessible, they have good APIs. So if you go to NuGet, if you're wanting to do this in the managed code, if you go to NuGet, there's a, a OpenCV.net. So OpenCV is C++ only. 
Yeah, it's a native library. Native yeah, we talked library. about that at the top of the show. Yeah, well, yeah, okay. You might have talked about op- NuGet for OpenCV, but uh, I don't know if you said OpenCV. There's a site. Net. Yeah, huh? there's a site called MGOCV. MGOCV. Yeah, I looked at emgu.com, and emgu looks like it is also on NuGet. EMGUCV. Uh, install dash package vvvv.emgucv and I don't know if that I haven't done it but that's just what a search brought me to so it is on NuGet as well so what's next for you Martin what are you going to do with all this great stuff well I hope to uh, complete assembling a a good team and uh, if we agree on a product then uh, there will uh, be a new company coming out doing something in this space that's great got a startup in mind huh? yep Uh, it's exciting times wish you great success thank you All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a